Our scripture reading tonight is from Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall become straight. The crooked and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of our God. This is the word of the Lord. There are a lot of words that we use as Christians that uh, sometimes you know, can be confusing. We don't understand maybe exactly what they mean, or we use them so much that we, we're not clear of their meaning. Uh, Mary Butler, one of our members here, was at a pastor's conference, and she ran into a, a large man, and uh, she thought, I wonder how I could strike up a conversation with him. He was a pastor, and, and she said, so how large is your body? And, and he looked at himself and stepped back and said, who the... And then she said, I'm so sorry. I mean, uh, how large is your congregation? You know. So words have uh, different meanings, and we have to use them in, in context. Um, <laughs> That's a good one, Mary. I, I, I like that one. Yeah. Repentance is, is a word kind of like that. Um, what does it mean to repent? Advent is a season in which we call one another to repentance as we prepare for a fresh encounter with Jesus at Christmas. Uh, the church turns to John the Baptist and his sermon on repentance. Every Advent is a way of preparing us to repent. But what exactly does that look like? What are you supposed to do the second week of December to repent? Well, let's, let's see if we can find some clues in this passage tonight that will help us prepare for the Lord by repenting. One of the things that Luke wants to, to do is, is to let us know that this story about Jesus and his cousin John is not like a Greek myth that happens in the shrouded mists of history. No, it, it happens in a real place, in a real time, in real history. And he gives seven names of seven guys you can look up in Wikipedia. Uh, and he places it for us around 28 A.D., uh, these are the guys that if Jerusalem had a newspaper, 
they would be the players on the front pages. And so he situates the story in that, that very real historical moment. But then he, uh, and, and by the way, those will also be the same characters that we meet again in Easter uh, who will put Christ to death. Well, then Luke changes scenes and he zooms in on this strange fellow, probably looked uh, like an Old Testament prophet because he really was the last Old Testament prophet who had spent his life wandering around the deserts outside the city walls, and his name is John the Baptist. And if Jerusalem had a paper, he'd never been in it. Uh, He was a guy out on the margins, spent his whole life uh, out on the edges. And this is Luke's way of, of introducing us to this idea that there are two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of the front page, and there's the kingdom of the wilderness. There's the kingdom of, uh, of this world. There's the kingdom of John the Baptist. There's the kingdom of power and the kingdom of obscurity, however you want to say it. And so he's already introduced us to this, this uh, great theme, this great tension that will flow all the way through the Gospel of Luke, that there's these two kingdoms in tension and conflict all the time. And that tells us a little something about repentance. Repentance is leaving one kingdom and entering another. It's uh, turning away from one story to a new story. Well, Luke also reminds us that John the Baptist is the son of Zechariah. You meet Zechariah back in the first verses of Luke's gospel. That's John the Baptist's dad. And he was burning incense in the temple uh, when the angel of the Lord encountered him, promised him that he and his wife Elizabeth would give birth to a son. And the angel says something very interesting to, 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 Zach, to uh, John, to, rather to Zechariah. Uh, he says, and the Holy Spirit will fill your son so that he can call the people back to God. Very important little phrase. The Holy Spirit will fill your son so he can call the people back to God. And I was thinking about that. I think that tells us something about repentance. That the only way my heart can be softened and made right with God, the only way that, that my soul can turn towards God's heart is through the Holy Spirit. It's a spiritual work repentance is. Now, if you remember the the story, uh, Zechariah is shocked. He doesn't believe. Uh, He's an older man. He doesn't think he and his wife can conceive. And the angel says, well, as a discipline for you, you're not going to speak until the child is born. And so he, he fails to hold on to the promises of God, trust in God's ways, trust in this new story that's breaking into the world. And maybe that tells us something about repentance, too. That it has something about acknowledging our lack of faith, our lack of trust, our resistance to the new story that's exploding in the world. Well, John travels through the region of the Jordan, and Luke says he proclaims a baptism of repentance and forgiveness for sins. And 
He is standing in the line of all the Old Testament prophets. This is what they all did. Here's a, a, a prophet speaking, or Isaiah speaking. Seek the Lord while he may be found, Israel. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And you see this message dozens, hundreds of times in the Old Testament where the prophet will come to the people of God and call them to repent, to turn from sin and to turn back to God. And the same idea is present in the New Testament. The Greek word is metanoia. It means to change one's mind, but the Greek word for mind, nous, means uh, your inner disposition, your heart. So it's to reorient your heart, your disposition, your desires, your inclinations around the ways of God. I read a good definition this morning. Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it. And a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. And Luke tells us that when John goes around proclaiming the gospel of repentance and forgiveness, he is, he's like this voice that cried out in Isaiah's prophecy. And we just read it. The voice says to Israel, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain laid low. Here's what was going on, in, as Ginger prayed, in the 6th century before Christ. Israel was in exile. They felt abandoned by God. They wondered if God would ever return. The prophet says to the people of God, one day there will be a highway built through the desert, and the king of Israel will walk on that highway and come back and reign in Jerusalem. It's a poetic vision of God reigning again over his people. And John takes that prophecy, and he, he, or Luke takes that prophecy and applies it to John's ministry and says that this is what John is doing by, by calling the people of God to repent. He's calling them to prepare their hearts so Christ can reign fully in them again. Now, these are calls for conversion. Uh, the, John is preaching to people who need to begin a relationship with Christ. So why every Advent do we ask John to preach again when many of us are already in relationship with Christ? It is because repentance is a very important part of life in Christ what we call sanctification, the way God grows us in Christ. Repentance is a very important part of that. Jesus tells his disciples, forgive us to pray. Forgive us our sins as we've forgiven those who sin against us. So every day we're to repent. And then Jesus tells the church in Laodicea, be zealous and repent. So Advent is a time when we remember this, when we look forward to the coming of the Lord, we're reminded that repentance, turning from sin, is a way of preparing our hearts to encounter Christ freshly. It's a way of removing the obstacles that have accumulated like barnacles on our soul that keep Christ's life from being released through us. 
And so it's a very important spiritual practice. And Advent is a season when we focus on this message of repentance. And um, the, the prayer for this week in the Book of Common Prayer uh, teaches us to pray this. Merciful God, who sent your messengers, the prophets, to preach repentance and prepare the way for our salvation. Give us grace to heed their warnings and forsake our sins that we may greet with joy the coming of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Well, let's return now to our original question. What does it really mean to repent during Advent? What, what practical? Can we go a little bit deeper? We've seen some clues in our reading of the, the gospel text tonight. Repentance is leaving behind a lesser story and embracing a better story. Repentance is believing the promises of God instead of living by fear. Repentance is a work of the Holy Spirit. Repentance is turning from sin and toward God. Repentance is preparing your heart to be filled with more of Jesus. Well, scripture warns us of the danger of false repentance. That we can think that we are repenting and not truly be repenting. And, and, and so I thought, I thought I'd end our time tonight but by noting several characteristics of true repentance. First, true repentance uh, focuses on the heart and not just on behavior. Behavior is important. If you say something unkindly, you need to deal with that. If you can't go to sleep at night without having four beers, that's a behavior that, that you, you need to deal with. Uh, there are a lot of behaviors that we need to address. But in the scripture, the root of sin is in my heart. The Bible often calls it idolatry, attaching our hearts to false gods and demanding that I make us secure and significant. And so Repentance is detaching from my false gods and reattaching to God as the ultimate source of my security and significance. That's hard work. That's hard to do. Now, one of the ways that you can work on that, if you're not really sure uh, maybe what idols have taken root in your heart, is you can look at your emotional life And you can look at emotions like anger or fear or disappointment or apathy or perhaps depression or or whatever's going on in your life, and you can work backwards from that emotion until you'll usually find some kind of an idol. You'll find some wrong belief about how to make life work apart from God that's being blocked, and that's resulting in the emotion. So that's a, that's a deeper kind of repentance. It's, it's much deeper than I, I shouldn't snap at my son. It's 
I'd hoped my son would be a different person. I made an idol out of his success. I worshipped him, and I'm mad. Do you see how different those levels are? So true repentance is, is a deep repentance that deals with the heart as well as behavior. And related to this, true repentance often addresses the sin of self-protection. And really, this is another way to talk about idolatry. We live in a fallen world. That word helps us. And so we develop strategies to make sure we'll never get hurt again. Some of those strategies are wise and helpful. Many of them become idols again. And so we learn to trust in our quick wit, our work ethic, our looks, our ability to hide, all sorts of things, instead of trusting in God. And so a deeper repentance is, is one that gets down to the level of our self-protective strategies, the ways that we try to guard our hearts instead of trusting in God. Third, true repentance usually has something to do with love and relationships. I mean, that makes sense. We are image bearers of the triune God. Jesus says the heart of our religion is loving God and loving others, as Reba prayed. Our deepest sins, then, are relational. And so one of the things that will help you repent is to become more aware of the impact of your sin on the people that you love. And I would go so far as to say we may never truly understand our sin until we see how it affects those we love. And, and this, this is where community comes in. This is where we have to have the level of trust and safety in our relationships where I can say to you or you can say to me, do you know how it affected me when you were late again for that meeting? Do, do you know, my friend, that I turned down three other meetings so that I could be there for you? Do you know that my daughter is sick and I'm not with her tonight because I was waiting for you? See, it's when we can start to understand the impact of our sin on how we love each other, then I think we begin to move towards a genuine repentance. Fourth, true repentance is not the same thing as shame. 2 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about a godly sorrow that leads to salvation. If you are genuinely repentant of sin, there will be sorrow, of course, but it will lead towards Salvation, it leads towards restoration, it leads towards uh, returning back to God. The parable of the prodigal, right? That's the perfect picture of it. He turns, he comes back, the father embraces him, he welcomes him back in the family. That's healthy repentance. 
But just on the other side of it is a deadly, toxic uh, camouflage, counterfeit repentance. And Paul talks about there is a kind of grief over sin that leads to death. And, and I find that this is some of the trickiest work in our souls, is discerning the difference between a godly sorrow that leads to repentance and salvation and a toxic sorrow that leads to shame and self-condemnation. You following me? There's a real fine line there. And, and I'm kind of embarrassed to, to admit this, but one of my favorite movies was that silly little... Uh, one with, gosh, never try to go off. When you're over 50, never try to pull things out. But um, um, it was, uh, who did the, I can't remember it, but there were monks in it. And they were walking around, bang, hitting themselves with a Monty Python and the Holy Ghost. God, that's terrible. That's terrible. God, note to self, don't start on illustrations that you didn't research beforehand. But I have always had this picture in my mind of these monks just kind of slapping themselves. And I, I feel like that's how we do as Christians. You know, you know especially maybe if, if there's something you've done that you're just pretty ashamed of. Uh, you, you know, it just seems to go to that place where you feel like you have to mortify your own flesh. And uh, I caught myself doing it the other day. Uh, th there was an attitude in my heart. I was just so mad at myself for, for not being able to put away. And every time I was in a conversation, I hit myself. I don't think that's real repentance. I think that's shame. There's, there's a difference. And, you know, one of the things the church does a real bad job of is we, we rank some sins, you know, worse than others. And uh, when you do one of those, we don't let you off the mat. Because preachers keep bringing up the same thing. And again and again and again, you hit yourself. If that's you tonight, if there's been a mistake in your life, and you just, you've been whacking yourself for a long time, just, just lay that switch down, brother. That's not repentance. That's penance. There's a difference. Christ took the stripes that were intended for you. You don't need to crucify yourself over and over again about your divorce, about your unfaithfulness, about your failure as a parent. You don't have to do it. True repentance also has a social dimension. You see this a lot in the Old Testament. God demanded that Israel not oppress people. And when she did, the prophets called her to repentance. And I 
sometime maybe we'll do a whole sermon on this. I don't understand it fully. I think as a Protestant evangelical, this whole idea of social sin and corporate repentance is sort of outside of my wheelhouse. I find myself thinking, well, why should I repent for that? I didn't do it. But the, the idea is, is that social sin is the, you know, the accumulation of sins in a society. And when bad things happen to people because of that accumulated sin in the culture, there is a sense in which I share a part in it. I, I got an email this morning from Megan McDonald, asked her if I could read it to you, because I thought it really got to the heart of what this looks like better than I could. Megan says, I felt very overwhelmed earlier this week with two more shootings, one involving terrorists. I literally just sat and cried. How does repentance relate to this? True repentance is being brokenhearted over what breaks God's heart. It is first drawing close to him, trying to figure out what grieves him, and then looking inside ourselves and seeing those things that grieve him. And then it's looking out at the world and seeing those things that grieve him, but doing so from a place of humility. And finally, we look back to him and know he's got the rescue all worked out. We're not waiting on him from a distance. He's waiting with us. And he's planning to turn all the mourning into joy that doesn't fade based on outside events. Here's the potentially practical application of this. Instead of ignoring the news or responding in disgust, or just getting generically upset over evil in the world, use it as an opportunity to repent, to draw closer to God, to grab his hand like a scared child would her father's, and wait with him as we all together walk through the darkness in the hope of the light. You know, something just popped up, and I've just got one more and we'll, we'll quit, but... It occurred to me that I did it to you. Uh, when I was trying to identify sins that you might be holding on to, uh, came up with a sexual sin, failed marriage, and, and parenting. And in a way, I reinforced that those are the worst sins. So if that happens to you again and again over the years, it's going to hurt you. So I'm sorry about that. But one, did, one did come to mind is, is, is that maybe there's someone here struggling tonight, and I don't know quite how to articulate it. Um, it's that you feel you've not lived up to your potential. You, you feel ashamed and guilty that you have not made the difference in the world that you thought you were going to make. Um, I've got a little article in the back of my mind. I put the notes on them in my journal, and and I think this one, someday I'll write, I think the title will be, In Which the Author Realizes He Will Never Be a Great Man. And I'm going to end it with the conclusion from Middlemarch. Can't go into that tonight, but if that's what you're struggling with, go read the novel Middlemarch. It's all about coming to peace with being obscure.
Don't whip yourself for that. You don't need to repent over a quiet life. Well, the last little thing that I've learned about repentance, maybe this is a big thing. I've found that true repentance doesn't lead to the degree of change I'd hoped for. Um, I guess I've always thought the goal of repentance is change. I mean, that's good theology, right? I mean, Christ comes into our life. We remove the sin. Christ more fully controls our life. He works in us and through us in more powerful ways. I think that's what the Bible says. That's good theology. And I think one of the reasons I got a little bummed out this fall was I realized I've been repenting of the same things for 40 years. And I'm, I see some change, but I thought I would have seen so much more by now. And last fall, some friends gave us this gift of a lifetime. We got to go with the monastery, the monks from the monastery where I attend over to, to Rome to see a, uh, a 1500th anniversary of St. Benedict. So we went and did a lot of monastery tours. And the abbot of the monastery, uh, Abbot Philip, uh, was with us. And for some reason, I kind of have a man crush on Abbot Philip. And (laughs) I I, I just watch him in the monastery. I just see his peace and his love and his joy. And he's wandering through Rome. And somebody comes up to him and says, I'm taking pictures of people in whom I see true joy. And I've only found two. And he's like that. And I thought, you know, if... If you were looking at me in Rome, you'd think, he's lost again. (laughs) (laughs) And I just want to be more like Abbot Philip. So I was talking to a friend about this this week, and he said, yeah, you know, we're supposed to change. But he said, "Maybe, maybe the deeper good of repentance it, is, it just moves you into more of a relationship with Jesus. And, and here's the paradox of aging and, and, and spirituality, is the longer I go and the more I turn towards Christ, the more ugly my sin is. So I don't feel like I'm getting very far. I feel like I'm going backward. But maybe there's a gift in that somehow. Well, we're going to end by just taking three or four minutes. And uh, I'm just going to pray for you and give you a chance to listen to the Holy Spirit. uh, See if he might show you where you might repent. Okay? So just get quiet. Lord, we, we know your word says that John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit as he began his ministry of repentance because this is a spirit work. And so, Lord, I, I pray for our family tonight, beginning with me. Um, I pray that you'd send your Holy Spirit, you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit, you'd lead us in your Holy Spirit to show us uh, one area where we need to repent this Advent. 
And Lord, this is not easy for us, so, so I'm just going to ask you, would you give us one word? Just one word tonight that would be like a key that would later unlock maybe a door with some, some stuff in it that we need to clean out. But tonight, would you just give us one word? 